Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Today, we welcome Dr. Jack Schultz, research professor in the Department of Biology and Biochemistry at the University of Houston. His research has focused on the chemical and molecular interactions between plants and insect herbivores, and those relationships are what Monty and Dr. Schultz explore as they discuss the amazing communications being discovered between plants and insects. It's a fascinating conversation, so let's jump right in. Welcome, everyone. I'm pleased to be joined with Dr. Jack Schultz today. Welcome, Jack. I'm glad you could be with us. I'm really happy to be here. Nice to meet you. Well, there's uh, everybody has uh, specialties in communication and how they talk to each other. In fact, I had a minor in speech communications in, in college, but it was focused on human-to-human communications. Um, Dr. Schultz, you've taken it a step further. You're You're listening to plants and eavesdropping on them. So tell us a little bit about your your story, how how you came to become interested in, in in your field of study and just what that has blossomed into into your your career. I'm interested in biology of all kinds, and that's probably because I had parents that were outdoors people, you know, hunters, fisher people, that that sort of thing. We went fishing every year, and you can't be out there underwater every minute. So I had lots of opportunities to. Uh, hunt for frogs and stuff like that. And uh, my mother in particular was really interested in natural history. So I was aimed at biology from very young age. Uh, However, it wasn't until college uh, where I, like everybody else who's a biologist, planned on medical school, I discovered that my um, quantitative and chemical skills were not, I was not advancing in chemistry and math very well. Um, and then I discovered ecology in my senior year. Uh, some really outstanding ecology faculty took several of us on a trip to the Caribbean, where we floated around for a few weeks, uh, you know, counting birds and doing all sorts of insect things. And one of those professors convinced me not only that ecology was a really interesting subject with broad application as well as broad interest, uh, but that insects were an ideal organism to work with. Uh, for a number of reasons, one of which is they're little, you can culture them in many cases, you know, you can do a lot of things with them. Um, So I went off to graduate school uh, intending to do something with insects, and um, I shouldn't say I discovered, we all know this, that uh, one of the main things insects do is eat plants. So I wound up paying more attention to the plants than the insects. Uh, And when I finished my PhD and went for a postdoc, that I participated in a variety of studies at the uh, Hubbard Brook Experimental Forest in New Hampshire, uh, where we were studying the interactions among birds, plants, or trees, birds, trees, and insects. Uh, we, for example, were the first people to show just how many insects the birds can can eat in a period of time in a forest and how much they depress the caterpillar population. Um, but it turned out that uh, birds aren't the whole story. Plants are defending on their own behalf. 
Um, and we really couldn't explain which insects ate what plants and how much without paying attention to the plants. And that means plant chemistry. Now, you may recall that I said that I wasn't doing so well in, in college chemistry. As it turns out, this turned into a career focused on plant chemistry uh, because that's what plants do to protect themselves against insects. Uh, so it was impossible to ignore. Um, and a wrinkle that was thrown into it that really shaped uh, our directions for the rest of my career was that if you just uh, look at the chemistry of plants at the time that insects show up and start to eat them, uh, you can get some interesting results. I mean, there are some, some chemicals in plants that are defensive right off the bat. But as it turns out, every plant that has been studied so far changes its chemistry in response to being eaten or attacked by an insect. And we call those induced defenses. Uh, and so, you know, if we studied uh, the chemistry of oak trees um, in a forest, that didn't actually tell us what chemicals were defending those trees against insects when they were attacked. So that opened, you know, like a Pandora's box of messy chemistry and so forth we devoted a lot of time to. And along the way, um, discovered that indeed oak trees change their chemistries in response to attack by insects. Uh, which at the time was a pretty big story because uh, this was uh, late 1970s. And the fact that plants actively responded to things like that was, was really new. Uh, so that turned into quite a good story, um, but it got even better. Uh, an undergraduate assistant and I attended a conference at which uh, actually a friend of ours reported that he was finding that uh, trees growing near to trees that are being attacked by insects also change their chemistry as though they were being attacked, even though they weren't. Uh, now that was a very messy story because uh, there were lots of alternative explanations that couldn't be ruled out. That was a, a field study. It's really hard to get solid answers that way. So uh, when the undergraduate and I returned back to Dartmouth where I was uh, uh, a, a postdoc, um, we did experiments in, in chambers with controlled air and controlled conditions and so forth and found that indeed, if you wound, in our case, a poplar tree, it emits odors that can turn on the defenses in nearby trees. So that's where you got the talking plant story, right? Because <laughs> uh, that's the way it was described at the time. Um, and it turns out that all plants emit uh, bouquets, if you will, of volatile organic compounds, perfumes, if you want, uh, that uh, when they are attacked by insects, and what's really curious about it is that the specific makeup of that bouquet uh, is specific to the insect doing the attack. So uh, an oak tree attacked by one species of caterpillar emits different signals than an oak tree attacked by a different species. Uh, that started an entire new field studying the uh, volatile organic compounds in plants. Uh, which has really, really taken off and has both applied and uh, underlying basic significance for, for a lot of plants and a lot of systems. As it turns out, probably the more important function of those bouquets of odors is that they attract natural enemies of the insects doing the damage. So for example, uh, corn plants emit one set of volatiles in response to one pest but a different set in response to a different pest. 
And the significance of that is that each of those pests has a parasite that's looking for it, a parasitoid wasp, and it can use the specific odor trail to find that insect on that corn plant. Uh, if you think about it for a minute, if you were uh, if you were a tiny one millimeter person wandering around in a cornfield trying to find a, uh, a stem borer, uh, it's you know it's an impossible task. So what plants are actually doing with these volatiles is uh, calling in their friends and making it possible for parasites and predators to uh, control insect populations. And that happens both above and below ground, which ought to interest those of you interested in soils, because uh, it's not as well studied, but it's very clear that uh, chemicals emitted by plants below ground alter the, uh, the soils in such a way that it can influence the resistance of the plant to various pests. Uh, final part of that is that uh, recent studies indicate that uh, uh, corn plants emit signals from their roots that attract entomophagous nematodes, that is nematodes that kill uh, root borers. Um, and uh, it's very effective over a space of about two meters. But unfortunately, a domestication has bred that out of almost all corn varieties. Uh, just recently, a laboratory in Switzerland engineered that signaling back into corn plants and it increased their resistance to uh, corn rootworm dramatically. So there are applications of these things, and that's just one of the examples. So that's that's where we got to. Uh, the, the bottom line is I'm really interested in how plants actively respond to things. The things I'm most interested in are pest insects. Uh, so it's plants, insects, and plant behavior for me. Fascinating, fascinating work. Um, in fact, uh, I think we should provide uh, free aspirin for anyone that listens to this podcast about how mind-blowing <laughs> your research is. So, <laughs> well, you know, you know about aspirin's original source. True. Good point. It's, uh, willows, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, aspirin is is uh, just a mo slightly modified version of a chemical that's defensive in willows. Uh, Native Americans used to chill willow, uh, chew willow bark to, to alleviate pain. And Dr. Bayer actually found a way to make it uh, more effective in humans, and that's why we have aspirin. Right. Tell me, do, do, you, uh, do you drink coffee? Huh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, people who drink coffee uh, are interested in the, uh, the alertness effects, and that's because caffeine acts in the central nervous system. But if you think for a minute, plants don't have central nervous systems. So why in the world are coffee plants making caffeine? And the answer is it's an insecticide. Uh, it's both lethal to small insects and it's very, very, very bitter. So it does a pretty good job protecting uh, coffee plants and the beans from, from pests. Uh, the better studied example is nicotine, uh, which has been used as a pesticide for centuries. Uh, and uh, that's a really good example of the induced defense situation. When a, when a tobacco plant leaf is wounded or attacked by an insect, uh, signals are transmitted to the roots where nicotine is manufactured. The nicotine is then pumped up to the site of damage and increases the resistance of the plant to the, to the attacker. Uh, that's economically significant because at least at one point, at least some growers used to top their uh, 
tobacco plants because that increases the tobacco, the uh, nicotine content of those leaves. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are all kinds of connections between this basic science, uh, which I, you know, I follow in part largely because I'm curious, uh, and applications. Well, I love the curiosity because you know that's an interesting mechanism on the tobacco plant because it's produced, yeah, in the root area, yeah, and there's significant microbial interactions that happen, you know, for oh, yeah. that. So uh, uh, very fascinating. So. You didn't like organic chem, and look at what you did. Uh, yeah, well, I had lots of good collaborators. <laughs> <laughs> you you found people who liked organic chem. There you go. And, yeah, and we're good at it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, let me take it one step further. Uh, you know, you mentioned on the is there did you did you look into outside of insects? Is that uh, when you're mentioning uh, oak trees and uh, infested by caterpillars and such? Is there signaling happening to uh, mammals, uh, birds? Uh, yes, actually, just in the last half dozen years, uh, investigators in Finland demonstrated that uh, birds can uh, are helped in locating caterpillars on, I think it was willow trees, uh, by following the odors, which is really startling because for decades, people assumed that birds had you know, very little sense of smell. Uh, it turns out that that finding produced a, a line of research that found that actually birds have a pretty good sense of smell, and they can definitely use those signals. Hmm. All right. Um, you know, you know I, I recently... And eat the willow bark, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. You know, I, I recently visited uh, Australia and uh, took a tour of uh, rainforest there. And uh, this kind of thing happens to you when you're a scientist and you uh, you do these tours. The tour guide, uh, when he was introducing us to the forest, said, you know, uh, actually, the way this forest works is that all of these trees here are communicating with each other uh, through, you know, airborne signals. Um, and so everything here is connected, which is people like to say, you know, uh, but with the so I'm, I'm standing there thinking, oh, I, I know about that, <laughs> you know. Uh, um, but uh, the interesting part of that was that he claimed that the native people there uh, could tell what was going on in the forest based on their perception of those odors. Uh, so if there was, you know, a, a tree that's really being damaged heavily or something, they could they could tell where it was. And I thought that was fascinating. There, there really, uh, as far as I know, there are no studies of uh, the sort of ecological signaling by plants to humans in that way. There's something interesting about that because um, you can, and, and maybe maybe you've observed this, but you can walk into certain fields and you can just you can just sense something's wrong. You know, I don't know oh, what yeah. it is. You know, it's a mm -hmm. some combination of our senses. Is, you know, and and you can you can just you get a feeling and and kind of go for it. And I think a lot of times we just have to pay attention to our senses and not dismiss them. Right? Sometimes. Oh, we, absolutely. We, Sometimes we think too much for our own good. The Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. The ASN team is hands-on, digging in and invested in regenerative agriculture. Along with the proper plant nutrition and biologicals to boost your soil microbiome, we provide the ideas and implementation guidance to support you on your soil health journey. So stop farming the same way and contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. 
yeah, senior year, a trip to the Caribbean, that will certainly have an influence on your career. You know, I, that's oh, yeah. a pretty good thing. <laughs> and, and and thankfully, you, you were this close and you avoid the entomologist thing. So, you know, that means you still have a good personality, right? And uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> Hey, I, I have a hat that says retired entomologist. I mean, there's no escaping it. Yeah, I was a oh, professor oh. of entomology at Penn State. So, but uh, interestingly, the entomology department at Penn State is heavily invested in chemical ecology, uh, and so many of the faculty there are in the same boat I was. Yeah, yeah. So, let me ask you. You know, one of the things that's really plaguing that area is uh, ash borer. Um, oh, yeah, and doesn't seem to be able to be stopped. We're looking at, you know, again uh, something else to eliminate a species. We're, uh, we have a, we have a signal interruption there, don't we? How do we, how do we help it signal or, or something to, to stop the progression of that? Well, the first thing is you need some, something that's interested in those beetles. Uh, and generally when pests are uh, carried from one continent to the other, their enemies don't follow. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, the USDA has a huge effort uh, looking for natural enemies of a wide variety of pests. Um, that effort, uh, although a good idea, is rarely, well, it it can be successful, but uh, it's very, very difficult. I think something like 300 natural enemies have been introduced uh, to control the gypsy moth on oak trees. Uh, and it, it, what finally worked there was a fungus. So, you know, <laughs> and it took a long time and that fungus occurred naturally. Anyway, th that beetle probably didn't bring any uh, natural enemies with it. So there's nobody to follow the order trail, hmm. first of all. Second of all, uh, although boring insects, and I don't mean to say it's uninteresting, I mean, it bores <laughs> in the tree. <laughs> um, uh, boring insects can cause plants to emit odors, but it's, it's a little harder because they're, you know, they're boring in wood and uh, living tissue connections are not so good with the leaves, which have to emit the odors. Um, but... Uh, there are people working on resistance traits, you know, trying to find uh, tree genotypes that are naturally resistant. I mean, the standard thing that we do there is we try to identify uh, the bases of resistance, chemical first and then genetic later, uh, uh, by looking for resistant trees. I mean, it's the same way you do in breeding is to, you know, to find resistant cultivars and so forth, except that this is mostly naturally done. Um, but then what do you do? Well, uh, agriculture has tended, for a variety of reasons, to uh, focus on and use resistance as, it, as they find it. Uh, the problem is that at least modern, at least Western agriculture, then plants enormous monocultures of these resistant plants. And I can tell you that there is no such thing as forever resistance. Insects and microbes are so fast to evolve the ability to deal with that stuff that you really can't call anything ultimate resistance. And if and you just make it worse by feeding them an enormous field of, or enormous you know, acres of, of plants that are identical in that way. Yeah. Um, so the, the alternative to that, there are actually two issues here, that's one. Uh, the other issue is that uh, plants have, have budgets just like you and I do. Uh, their budgets have three main concerns, growth, reproduction, and defense. And that's a finite budget. Unless a plant can increase its income in terms of photosynthesis and carbon, mm -hmm. if it invests more in one of those functions, 
it has less to invest in the others. So by maximizing uh, reproduction, that is productivity or growth uh, for crop purposes, uh, the defense defenses naturally take a hit because the energy's got to, and materials have to come from somewhere and that's where they come from. So most of our agricultural uh, plants have had these defenses uh, lost, either because of economics, of the, the plant's economics, uh, or uh, be, you know because of selective breeding. Uh, you've probably seen pictures of the original tomato, right? Yeah. It's about the size about the size of a dime, and it's all hairy, and you really would not want to eat it. Uh, today's tomato is quite different, but that came at the expense of the defensive chemistry of tomatoes. Um, now that's, that's a good thing for eating tomatoes. You really don't want to eat the defenses of tomatoes as they originally were. <laughs> so for both taste and health reasons and, and productivity, we've lost most of those, uh, those defenses. You come back to something like ash trees and we don't really know anything about the basis of the resistance to things. Uh, this is a brand new insect. So does it even have defenses that are relevant to this thing? Uh, if so, what are they? Are there underlying genes that you can deal with? That's why so many researchers are really interested in gene editing as uh, the future here, because um, with gene editing, and I don't mean necessarily uh, transgenics, I mean the ability to go into the genome and change the expression of individual genes, turn them up, turn them down, change their function a little bit. Uh, that has less impact on the economy of the plant. Uh, and it's not really... Uh, the kind of thing that people are afraid of. You're not actually putting like, you know, a, I don't know, a firefly gene into a corn plant. You're, uh, you're actually just tweaking the genes of the corn plant as they naturally function. And a lot of researchers are very enthusiastic about that. In fact, there's been some very successful research doing that to increase the photosynthetic capacity of plants, including crop plants, which would increase that budget uh, and give the plant more to work with so that it might be able to, you know, be continue to be productive and still defend itself. But boy, it's it's really, there is a researcher at the Wayne State University doing a lot on uh, trying to find resistance uh, to the, uh, the borer, uh, but it's very slow. Uh, trees are really hard to work with. You know, they don't reproduce until they're like 50 years old, some of them. Uh, that doesn't make for a good lab rat. <laughs> you know, you're not doing much crossbreeding with those. Well, oh. let's, let's talk a little more about lab rats here. So um, you've got, you know, one of the things that I, that I think about is, you know, we do a lot of, a lot of things in agriculture to get, to get a benefit, um, whether it's yield or plant defense mechanism, sure. uh, those, you know, herbicide resistance and such, but then there becomes the unintended consequences. So oh, got yeah. all of these, um, uh, you know, corn plants out there, they're all talking to each other. And then, then we insert some uh, transgenic traits, which is what's being done today. Sure. Um, how does that affect uh, the signaling uh, between plants? Does it, does it effectively, maybe because we're changing a lot of the met metabolic pathways, when we do that, we're going to be changing organic compounds that they produce. Are we hitting the mute button uh, on those plants to be able to call in the, the the predators to defend them or or signal that hey i've got a problem get ready yeah uh, i've got two answers to that the first one is it it kind of depends on what you tinker with mm -hmm. um so let's talk about cotton for a moment cotton's defenses uh include fairly large concentrations of condensed tannins those are protein inhibitors they make it difficult to digest the plant and they uh 
they're actually bad tasting as well. Um, but if you tinker like, with hey, just like the coffee, you know, in wine, it's good, you know, for people, you know, it's oh, a, sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. deadly to insects. Good for people. I'm, I'm seeing a trend. Mm, <laughs> no red wine is truly great without tannins. That's true. That's no question about it. And the tannins are protective in grapevines, too. Um, but when the when the fruit ripens, the tannins drop, uh, although less so in a red grape than in a white grape. Uh, that's so birds will take them. Anyway, um, so uh, but tannins that that whole biosynthetic pathway, the chemicals involved there, uh, are rarely or never volatile, and generally don't participate in external signaling of any kind. So you can tinker with those and not change the the communication much. On the other hand, uh, the plant also produces terpenes. Uh, you know, you want to think the odor of pine saw or pine trees, you know, those those are signaling compounds. They turn on various things in the plant and in uh, and in other plants, and they're attractive to natural enemies. They're also attractive to bark beetles, but that's another story. Um, if you tinker with those, you run the risk of, of modifying the signaling system. Um, so that's a little trickier, a little more dangerous. <clears throat> um, so that's answer number one. Answer number two is, as you kind of alluded to, uh, and I'm kind of at odds with the bioengineering community on this, um, the more you study the gene networks in a plant that govern the various functions a plant has, the more connections you find. Now, I know it's, you know, it's a kind of a corny ecologist saying but when it comes to gene networks and plants, I really think you can't just do one thing. Uh, right now, I'm studying uh, plant responses to insects that form galls on them. Uh, I don't know if you know about galls. Do you know about um, hessian fly in wheat? Yes, yes. All right, the, the larva there causes a swelling on the plant. That's called a gall. Uh, that gall uh, is a strong sink. It draws resources from the plant particularly the upper part of the plant, and that's why they lodge. They, they fall over because the stems are weak. Um, uh, that's a change in the development of the plant. Uh, those insects that do that, and I work on uh, phylloxera, on grape leaves, uh, <clears throat> those insects actually change the expression of genes involved in the development of the plant to produce novel structures. Some of them are absolutely wild and crazy, you know, with spikes and red colors and all kinds of crazy things. So the insects tinkering with developmental genes. But the more I look at those developmental genes, they're also involved in six other functions. So as I think you were, you were thinking, uh, strikes me as a little arrogant to think that you can just change one gene or a couple of genes in a plant and alter only one function. I, I've got my doubts about that, and um, now that's that's different from inserting whole new genes like uh, Bacillus thuringiensis toxin in plants. Mm -hmm. uh, that, in, in cotton, that's an interesting story. The uh, the condensed tannin we we showed that condensed tannins block Bt function yeah, in insects. Uh, they they bind to the protein and uh, prevent it from having its effect, uh, <laughs> and they. Uh, Chemical, ag chemical company came to talk to me about that. I won't name them. Uh, and I, I was a young assistant professor and I just blurted everything I knew. And the next thing I knew what they had done is tripled or quadrupled the number of BT genes they were inserting in the cotton plants 
to overcome the condensed tannins. <laughs> so, so the expression of uh, BT genes in cotton now is really, really high because cotton naturally resists their, their function. Hmm. So if you're going to tinker with these things, you got to know what you're doing. You got to know lots about all the pathways. It's really complicated and it keeps some of us in business for a career. <laughs> well, <laughs> see, there's, there's an uh, unintended benefit. Right? <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, you know, ecologists have known about unintended consequences for decades. That's what they're about. You know, you do this thing over here and, uh, you know, you, you remove the wolves from, uh, from uh, Yellowstone and something happens to the trees. I mean, that's the kind of thing they're used to seeing, you know. Right. The same thing is true in lots of other settings. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 very true. So, um, you know, one of the things that we notice on growers we work with that deal that plant non-GMO uh, corn, mm -hmm. uh, for yeah. example, um, less incidence of tar spot. Okay, mm. why is that related? You know, mm. totally different things. You know, less incidence of uh, insect issues. So. Mm. It's fascinating. Let's let's um, one other thing talk about on the unintended consequences. You know where we're maybe disrupting the the calling um, is. I think a lot of times uh, with our modern seed treatments, where we have uh, insecticide load in, in a lot of the plants in a field. Uh, if a plant does get attacked by an insect, uh, we're we're also taking out some of the other uh, beneficials that would be there to respond. Um, is that almost the equivalent of uh, calling, but nobody's home, you know, where that mechanism is? Well, sure. You just don't well, if you knock out the benefits, sure. If you knock out the beneficials, there's no, you know, no, uh, nobody to respond. You know, it's actually the interaction between um, induced defenses and in crop plants and the application of pesticides is a pretty active area now. Uh, I was just looking at a paper on that this morning, sort of investigating. Uh, both the chemical and ecological outcomes of mixing those two things. And guess what? It's complicated. <laughs> it's, it's not, and, and that's really a very young interest in people. And so uh, there's really nothing to be said yet about what the actual interactions there would be, except you have definitely identified the fact that if you knock out the beneficials, there's nobody to respond to the calls. Right. Uh, People are interested in whether the chemistry of pesticides actually interferes with the chemistry of signaling, too. Uh, but that's just starting that kind of research. Hmm. More and more cans of worms to open here. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, mine, mine was a 40 is. I've been doing this for 40, 45 years, and uh, I'm still analyzing data. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh, but no, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to, to think about all these, these, just these little things that we do. So now on the beneficial side, we've been incorporating cover crops a lot and especially in orchard crops. And we are noticing significantly reduced needs for miticides, insecticide sprays, mm -hmm. uh, even yeah. fungicides. And now I can understand the insecticides because we're, we're providing a habitat to bring beneficials in. So when the uh, tree would respond, or send out mm -hmm. the signal, hey, the the we've instead of waiting for the population to increase and respond, it's there to respond. So it's a, a mm -hmm. speed thing. But we're also seeing some things in regards to to fungicide and bloom and and those kind of things. Would that be more of a root signaling response? Would you would you just and purely anecdotal here? But what but we well, are seeing less fungal fungal issues on bloom. There are some less anecdotal stories. And by the way, uh, you know, when I tell you that somebody knows something, I'm really talking about 
published stuff that it, you know is backed up by reviews and stuff. I I really right having done public communication and science for a long time, I'm really irritated by just so stories. Anyway, but here are two, while they're related, uh, that apply to your interests there. Uh, Japanese investigators showed that uh, if you grow bean plants in, you know, pots and soil, you add aphids to them so that the plant responds defensively to the aphids. And then you remove that plant and put a new plant, a new undamaged pea plant in the same pot. It expresses the defense responses. So there was definitely signaling left behind in the soil that the undamaged new plant sensed and caused it to turn on its defenses. And that is also true of volatile emissions. If you get a pea plant in a pot to uh, emit its volatiles, you remove it, you put a new plant in the pot, it will emit the volatiles. So there's definitely below ground signaling going on there. I already told you about attracting nematodes. Uh, as I'm sure you know, it's really hard to do chemistry in soils. Um, you know, they, they stick to everything in the soil. It's really a very difficult system. But more and more people are finding uh, that characteristics of the soil are critical to how the plant uh, can respond to things. Think about, I was thinking that when you were telling your story in the 1970s when you did your first work there on, on the oak trees. Look at the technological advances we've had in sensors <laughs> and lab ability to to do this. And now it's just exploding, isn't it? I mean. It is. But, you know, uh, we've been limited. Well, first of all, let's back up for a second. Um, everything we're talking about here happens as a result of changes in the expression of genes. Um in order to make these, these signals, the plants have to turn on genes that make the proteins that make the signals. Uh, so <laughs> I've, I've gone from, uh, from a situation where my, my major piece of gear was a butterfly net to doing almost exclusively a molecular work now. And the reason for that is I wanted to know how this works. And the answer is in the genes. <clears throat> well, now we can do that. So the question for the, the pea pot experiment is going to be which genes are turned on or turned off by whatever's in the soil. Uh, and, and we can now do that. However, we can still only do that mainly with a few model plants because we don't know the genes in most of the plants. The whole reason I got into the molecular world was that I wanted to know how the oak trees were responding to these things. And there was no oak genome. In fact, I don't think there still is an oak genome. So there was no library of genes I could go to to see what was, you know, what was active and what was not active. And that was very frustrating. And reviewers at the National Science Foundation made it very clear to me that I was not going to get away with that. <laughs> that both those some some brutal reviews. You know, what are you talking about? You can't do this. Uh, nowadays, uh, you can s sequence an entire plant. In other words. Uh, identify its entire genome for a couple of thousand dollars in a week. Uh, now, the problem with that is we still don't know necessarily what each of those genes does in that plant. And so we're still limited by uh, studies that are needed to identify the actual functions of those genes, even though we can find them. And that's still best done in a couple of model plants. That's why I work on grape. Uh, I've worked with Arabidopsis, which is the lab rat. 
and, you know, there are a few uh, agricultural plants are coming on. Uh, USDA has, has, has slowly rotated its uh, preferences and funding away from model plants towards more crop plants. And at the start, that was very frustrating because you didn't have anything to work with in crop plants. Uh, nowadays, though, the genomes of a lot of crop plants are sequenced and we have a lot more to work with. Some of them, like wheat, though, are really still difficult. I think wheat is a hexaploid or something. I mean, it's just, it's got a nutty genome. Um, but but our, those technical advances have really allowed us to do a lot of things we couldn't do before. And you, you're absolutely right. Uh, we wouldn't know half of what we know now without them. So let's, let's uh, you know, dive into that a little bit. Do you think um, in the future, will it be easier to identify these compounds, these defense compounds that they are making, or will it be easier to identify with some sort of remote sensing technology, uh, <laughs> genetic markers that have yeah. been activated? Mm -hmm. um, I had a couple of grants from uh, DARPA, the, the Defense Advanced Research Agency. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and what they were interested in was whether or not plants could report their exposure to TNT. Hmm. Um, they were wondering whether uh, soldiers could measure something in a field before they walk through it to see if there were landmines present in the soil. Uh, it turns out that plants take up TNT really well. Uh, in fact, it's kind of a, it's, it's sort of protein-like and they, they can use it to improve their growth. Uh, so the idea was, and, oh, and TNT leaks out of landmines uh, a lot into the soil. Huh. So the idea was if there was something you could identify that you could measure in plants, uh, they might tell you that this field was mined or even where the mines are. Well, that's a gene question as well, okay? Um, our approach to it was to see whether or not uh, plants emitted a characteristic odor bouquet in response to TNT in the soil, and they do. Uh, you could definitely locate a landmine if you could sample the odors, uh, the volatiles emitted by the plant. Uh, the military is also interested in whether plants could uh, help us find uh, biowarfare agents. Um, uh, and uh, <laughs> we, um, we didn't have access to the kind of, there are only two labs in the country where you can work with serious bioweapons. Um, and uh, we didn't have one, of course, uh, at Penn State. And uh, so we worked with uh, the closest relative to anthrax. Uh, it's just a few genes different from anthrax. And we found that uh, plants exposed to uh, that bacterium also emitted a characteristic uh, odor plume. So in both of these cases, you could uh, detect the presence of, a, of that biological agent and or TNT by sniffing the plants. The problem with that is the only thing on the planet that is that good at sniffing plants is a dog. And dogs can already smell TNT. <laughs> I mean, they, they can be used in demining, except that nobody wants to lose a dog. Uh, what the, what's happening now in, uh, I think it's in Africa, is the use of rats. Uh, which also are really good at sniffing TNT, and uh, they're very helpful in finding mines. And I, I guess, and forgive me for saying this, but I guess people don't mind losing rats here and there. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but nobody, nobody wants their golden retriever blown up, you know. <laughs> um, 
So dogs have uh, something like 400 times more odor receptors than we do. Their world is, you know, they see the world through their nose. Uh, and so it's no surprise that they can identify a plant that's infested with something or growing on TNT, no problem. Um, so we figured, well, what can we do with that? And the, the only instrumentation that humans use for that uh, is a gas chromatograph, which is, you know, a kind of instrument that uh, pulls the air with the, the stuff in it in the front end and separates all the components and tells you, you know, what was there. The problem with them is that uh, you couldn't just walk through a field, you know, like a soybean field or something, and expect it to be able to register at the concentrations that these things are, are out there. So we worked with an engineer who's now at the University of Michigan, who developed a gas chromatograph about this big uh, that uh, we thought might work in the field. I mean, you'd have to, well, what we thought is you might put it on a tractor or carry it around in a field. And uh, you know, it, you would arrange it to light up when it detected something you were looking for. And then we ran out of money. Uh, and uh, we got to the point where we were going to well, first greenhouse test and then lab test that. And the DARPA money ran out and NSF wasn't interested. Um, and so we never got any farther with it. That machine now is doing what dog, another thing that dogs do in diagnosing human diseases by sniffing the breath of patients. Uh, you can identify diseases that a person has from the odors that they emit. Uh, and dogs can detect that. And now this gas chromatograph is used for that. So and we got now, something useful out of it, you know. Okay, so th th let me ask you that defense mechanism of the, is that the human that is uh, uh, creating those um odors, the organic compounds, or is that the disease creating those organic compounds? And to what end was that done uh, if there's nothing that can uh, react to that organic compound, I guess? Well, the, every, the first of all, it's a plant making these things, and okay. it's doing that in response to something. Mm -hmm. uh, why exactly it emits something that you can identify in response to TNT in the soil, nobody knows. Mm -hmm. um, in the case of uh, bacteria, um, well, plants are exquisitely sensitive to bacteria and can identify them by single gene differences. Uh, they're really good at that. Uh, the question is, why would they emit particular volatiles uh, in that case? And uh, as it turns out, one of the very first lab studies of uh, signaling uh, between plants showed that you can create virus resistance in uninfected plants by exposing them to the air from infected plants. Say that again. Um, you can, Very important. <laughs> you can generate resistance to viruses in an uninfected plant by exposing it to the air from an infected plant. Hmm. Now, you know, that gets us back to the talking plants and are they trying to help each other? It, it, it's, you know, an explanation for that, you know, might be that uh, viruses spread well, and maybe the emitting plant, um, you know, cuts down on the spread of the virus to other plants. But it's really not in an individual plant's interest to help its neighbors; they're competitors. Correct. Uh, so it's not immediately clear, in that particular case, what the uh, what the signaling means. 
We do have an alternate, alternative explanation. In another study we did, we found that um, when a leaf, say, if you count the leaves from the top of the plant to the bottom, uh, you know, one, two, three, four, five, um, if leaf five is attacked by an insect, uh, the airborne signals from that leaf five get to leaf one much faster than any signal that can go through the plant. So it may be that the function in both the virus case and the, uh, the insect case is that the plant is helping itself by spreading its own signals. It's talking to itself, you know, to speed up its responses. That's a possibility. I think our human nature still loves the warm and fuzzy feeling that it's trying to, uh, the plants trying to protect <laughs> its neighbors and the survival of the species, right? So, I know there's been some uh, argument about that, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the you, way natural you get selection the, works. Then you get the sociologists <laughs> in, involved and then, then it just, it all gets off the rails. So. You know how uh, often I have to have this kind of conversation with people who believe in conscious plants? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, you yourself, I, I do have you on record saying, quote, plants are just slow animals. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. I... <laughs> All right. So that's a bit of an, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but I'm, I'm telling you, I'm on a crusade to get people to understand that plants have behaviors and they're much more dynamic than you think. Um, there's a thing called plant blindness, and I think people are objecting to the use of the word blindness. I don't know. But when I give a public lecture, I always ask my audience, did they notice the plants in the lobby on the way in? And nobody ever does. Uh, of course, sometimes there aren't any, but yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but if there are plants, nobody noticed them. Uh, and that's the way people think about the plants. They're part of the furniture. And is that a real plant to your left there? Uh, no, it is not. <laughs> okay. I, so it is. We're in a non-lighted environment. It, it, would, it would be. It is furniture. Yeah. Yes, you're you're looking at furniture all around. So yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, every chance I get, I try to convince people that plants are more dynamic and do more things than they thought. And that that you know, animal comparison is kind of an exaggeration. Although, if we went through you know step by step, particularly in terms of senses, the comparison would be pretty good. Hmm. So, a couple other things you mentioned. You know, you're earlier the machine that you were saying was about six inches in size yeah uh did, you were also involved with something else that got these individual uh compounds down to sensing and something about the size of a um a chip that's the size of your finger right. or so right. to identify specific compounds and then talk to us about that what that is and how that can translate into um you know particularly like fruit ripening and such because we have a lot of tomato growers and vine growers um yeah. that uh uh, listen to the podcast. So uh, share share about that technology and, and has that progressed any uh, to no. a commercial scale? No. Uh, first, let's talk about that. And then I want to talk about what you could do if they do work. And uh, to be honest with you, uh, I think the possibility is there, but I'm not an engineer. It, it, <laughs> there are a you lot of- do uh, so much. <laughs> yeah, well, there are a lot of sociological things that influence how science is done. And one of them in my experience is that it's not that easy to get engineers interested in a fundamental biological question. Hmm. Uh, and then if you get them interested, it takes some work to get them to understand it. So I was lucky to find one or two you know, who would take a shot at this kind of thing. Uh, but the other sociological com thing that comes in is you run out of funding uh, or accidents happen. So th the first thing we tried with that is a, uh, a metal chip uh, 
that vibrates at a particular frequency when you expose it to an electrical force, so a radio wave, actually, okay? If you coat that chip with things that uh, capture things flying around in the air, uh, the, the increased mass on the chip will change the frequency at which it vibrates when you hit it with, an, with a, a radio beam, okay? Uh, that's used in lots of settings. Um, so uh, I got an engineer interested in whether we could design one that would change its frequency when it was exposed to plant volatiles. It turns out <clears throat> that the polymers that you coat these chips with are difficult to make, and they have to be designed so that they have a specific affinity for the molecules you're trying to find in the air. So he assigned a postdoc to that project. And uh, creating these, these uh, polymers is done in a safety hood because they're, they're toxic and, you know, as you're making them. And they had a hood failure and the uh, postdoc was poisoned and wound up in the hospital for months. Uh, in the meantime, and here's where the engineering culture comes in. In the meantime, uh, the engineer discovered that the chips, can't, you can feed them to people and as they pass through the, the, the gut, in a capsule, of course, when they pass through the gut, they can measure the, uh, the pH of the gut and tell you all about the pH of the gut from the top to the bottom by passing through as long as you hit them with radio waves. And that was a much more profitable application. Hmm. At the time, there was no money in creating a chip that could sense plant volatiles, but lots in medical applications. So we lost that one. I already told you about the other one that ran out of money. So the, the various devices that I've described have been partially developed, but never finished. So it, it's frustrating and you need a particular team. It's, it's absolutely an interdisciplinary pro problem and you, you need a, the right team to do it. I haven't, haven't been able to put it together. What could you do? Well, uh, it's already been distinguished. When, when you go to the market and you're looking for a ripe melon, how do you do that? Well, you look you at can it. thump it. Yeah, you can thump it. You can look at it. You can smell it. Uh -huh. It turns out that a gas chromatograph is much more accurate at telling how ripe that melon is than your nose is. Uh, this has been demonstrated with grapes, where it's critical to know how, exactly how ripe the grapes are when they're harvested. And it turns out that uh, experimentation shows that uh, if you can analyze the odors from the grapes, you can detect their uh, ripeness much more accurately than you can looking at them or using your own nose. Um, so there's an obvious application. Uh, uh, grape growers are really excited about the possibility of better ripeness you know, measurements because you go through the vineyard, you know, and they're all different stages of ripeness. A big problem they have is figuring out when to harvest and which ones to harvest. The same thing is true in a in a greenhouse. In a, you know, you if you look in a uh, tomato hothouse, there are green tomatoes, there are, you know, more ripe tomatoes, and there are ripe tomatoes, and then there are the diseased ones and the ones on the floor. They all smell different. If you had small enough device to sniff that, you could identify the ripeness of each of those. Uh, really precisely and make a decision about when to grab them. So, sorry about that. 
no, that's uh, that's interesting. And, and how you, you know, I'm just thinking that, you know, you made the comment of two examples there that just got lost in the shuffle, either from a, a better application, a higher value or, or, you know, lost funding or, or those yeah. kind of things. I'm just thinking, imagining how many, how many unfinished projects are out there with, oh. with good technology that are not being applied that just gets lost. Well, okay. Mind My ball. career is, has been pretty much driven by curiosity. So I'm a basic researcher. Mm -hmm. um, and I really promote the need for basic research, which has many fewer funding sources than applied research does. But it also has no constraints on what you can find. Uh, I know from your previous podcast that you're familiar with the problem that applied researchers run into when they're funded by industry. Mm -hmm. uh, industry is interested in a particular outcome. Uh, in academia, if, if you can't publish your work because industry prohibits it, you're not going to get tenure. Uh, so that's, a you know, from my point of view, that's a very dangerous situation. Um, so uh, I fully believe that we need the kind of information that basic research provides to carry it forward into application. Without that, I mean, basic research is turning up the, the bottom line, you know, functions and principles that you can then take into the field or into the greenhouse to work out its uses. Um, a lot of people get irritated when you say, well, I'm interested in this because it's interesting. Well, that's true. It's also interesting because it has an application. Uh, but, you know, all my funding has been from the, the NSF, uh, let's see, uh, DARPA, and some grants from USDA and uh, the Forest Service. Uh, and I've always highlighted what potential applications could come out of our work. Uh, but we've been working pretty much at the basic level. Well, it has to be done, right? We have oh, to yeah. by that curiosity, and I appreciate your curiosity. And um, while we still got a little bit of time left here together, I wanted to share with you an interesting observation we had on our own farm. Um, mm -hmm. About, I forget, 10 years ago or so, we had a real bad outbreak of Japanese beetle on corn, uh, you know, uh, in, in Illinois. And it's continued to be a problem ever since. And I happened to be in California at the time, and and I was getting these reports from uh, University of Illinois Extension. Oh, check! It's you know the world's coming to an end, mm -hmm. and um, we had been out and sprayed one of our foliar products that contained a lot of um, there was uh, kelp extracts in it, and and some other signaling compounds. Mm -hmm. And my dad was saying, he said, "I don't see any. There's maybe one or two. I just don't see any Japanese beetles." And then he would walk across the fence into the neighbors and only like four or five rows away, the plants would be <laughs> yeah. covered with them. And that was when I first, I, I started digging into it a little bit and realizing that, Hey, there's signaling happening, um, you know, between these plants. And then, then we would see a, a hail event on one field, the same variety across the road didn't get hailed, but then the Japanese beetles were in where the plant had been stressed by hail, but, but the unstressed plants didn't have it. So mm -hmm. there's just this amazing potential for application, isn't there? I mean, oh yeah, everything well, that kill happens... the bug if you can just uh, scare it away or or make the plant well, they will they will go to your neighbor. <laughs> don't, don't tell him. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, two things about that. One is we've we've talked mainly about uh, these signals attracting beneficials, but they also attract pests. Yes, uh, you know. Sometimes it's the same signal, but uh, often it's not. There's you know one for the pest and one for the enemy. 
and uh, Japanese beetles are very sensitive to that. They also aggregate using their own pheromones. Uh, and that's why people use pheromone traps for them so much uh, in gardens, you know. If you put them, <laughs> but what a lot of people do is they put the trap in the garden. Oh, and the beetles, <laughs> yeah, the <laughs> beetles, they quickly fill up the trap and then they're on the, on the garden, you know. Uh, um, so put the trap oh, yes. in the neighbor's garden. Okay, I got it. That's yeah. right, yeah. Well, or some distance away, to be <laughs> kind, you know. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but let me tell you about uh, a very successful approach using the, uh, the observations you just made. Uh, there's a technique called push-pull technology. It's been very successful in uh, Africa. I, I don't think we'll have the time to go through it here, but it employs mixed cultures in which some of the plants repel pests Others are planted in such a way that they can attract pests away from the crop. And yet others uh, are there because we know that they attract beneficials. So it's a mixture of plants using what we know about their specific signaling systems to protect the crop. Evidently, it's very successful. But the catch is that's not modern agriculture. Those are you know, family farm, small plots. Uh, where they can do mixed cultures because they don't do any automated harvesting. And automated harvesting is a real enemy of doing any of these things because it's, if, you, if you have to have uniformity, it really makes it hard to, to, uh, to get some of this stuff done. Although plants can be physically uniform and chemically very different. So that's yeah. the place to go, I think. But back to talking about those you know, obnoxious engineers, uh, they're working on things now with automation you know, sensing yeah. technology and, and that'll make it smaller that, mm -hmm. that we can then have companion uh, crop growing situations that we can mechanically harvest. Yeah. I noticed that, that There's the harvesters are getting uh, much more sophisticated. Yeah. yeah okay. And I don't know, have you seen the, the research at Davis where they're using uh, uh, video and lasers to uh, kill weeds early in the crop? Yes. Yes. And, uh, that, that's a great way to do it. Um, we've had one of the folks on the podcast about that. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, as we get that polyculture involved, there's, there's soil benefits as far as water availability there, there's definitely plant health benefits and, and really it's a return to what the native Americans did. Right. Except for we're able oh, yeah, to mechanically right. harvest instead of hand harvest. And, um, one of the things, I, the harvesters I, just get busy, bigger because there's fewer people to run them. Right. So. Well, that's true too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've spoken at a couple of uh, soils and cover crop conferences, and something nobody's paying attention to is the kind of observation that we talked about earlier, in which uh, the characteristics of the soil influence what the above-ground plants do, including defenses and interactions with you know with enemies. Um, if we knew enough about what particular plants were putting into the soil to turn on you know, defenses in the crop plant uh, or what they're doing, you know, to kill pests while they're there. And I think that's that's done a little bit because you can figure that out practically. You could really select uh, cover crops much more intelligently, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I realize a lot goes into that, but I think one thing that doesn't get as much attention as it could is what the cover crop does to the soil quality in terms of defenses. So almost like the genome for the plants, we almost need the uh, effects of the plants. Uh, as yeah. far as are they calling in beneficials? Are they repelling uh, pests? And, and create that uh, cocktail to where that is the cover crop and or the companion crop that we're running with our cash crops to um, to make that happen. Now, let me warn you. Yes. 
tobacco has tobacco hornworms and so do your so do your tomatoes right mm -hmm. they don't care about defenses uh <laughs> and they're really good examples about how for every measure there's a countermeasure <laughs> on the part of the pest you know right uh Tobacco hornworms even emit gaseous nicotine from their their spiracles to scare away spiders. And that's their primary predator? Uh, that's one of them. Now, birds wow. would be the primary one, but birds aren't going to touch those things. They're really off. <laughs> well, they're loaded with nicotine. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, um, nature has a way to overcome, like you said, uh, nothing is resistant uh, forever and uh, everything is a food force, food source for something else. So um, anyway, no, I really appreciate the the work that you've done and the, I love the curiosity part. You mentioned it multiple times and that being curious and just asking why is so, so important. And I, I just really appreciate what you've done and how you've contributed to the body of science. And we can, we can hope that, uh, it'll, you know, more and more of what you've done will get picked up and put in applications. So. Yeah, we hope so too. Anything else uh, we should have added while we were visiting here <laughs> together today? I don't think so. I think we've had fun. We've wet, we've wet the appetite and we'll certainly have some resources and Kim will put in there to uh, follow up and, and look at uh, the vast amount of work that you've done and, and people can explore and, and dive deeper on their own. So I really appreciate it. Well, it's been a great, great time with you. I really appreciate being here. Thanks so much. Thank you, Dr. Schultz. Take care. Thanks for listening today. I am amazed at the way plants and insects interact. And I think it's so critical for us to understand these relationships so we can utilize them in our soil health systems. And as always, we'd love to help you implement a systems approach to healthy soil practices. So check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.